Well, it's wonderful once again to be with you. I am primarily uh, in my calling a preacher, and so uh, what I'm doing in these presentations is a little bit different, obviously, than what I would do on a Lord's Day morning if I were preaching in my congregation. These are lectures or teaching. And you know, last year in this conference, as was noted, we sort of uh, gave some general introduction and orientation to confessional bibliology. And this one, with the topic being chosen as received text apologetics, we're getting in maybe a little deeper into some specific challenges and questions. Uh, as I noted last night, we're following the uh, basic spirit, I would say, of the the audiences that are addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, when Paul asked, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so we are taking three talks. Last night we looked at giving an answer, reasoning with uh, the wise of this world, and I suggested we could talk about a professional academic scholar like Bart Ehrman. In this second session, we're going to continue that topic, but we're going to be looking at reasoning with the disputer of this world. And so in this session, we're asking... How does one defend the traditional text, the confessional text, against those who within the broader circles of evangelical and even Reformed Christianity actively reject and fight against it? By the disputer of this world, I'm taking uh, that term from the passage in 1 Corinthians and applying it to the modern evangelical textual critics, and popular apologists who are scandalized by the idea that there might be those of us who would actually advocate for the traditional Protestant text of the Bible and who might actually prefer classic Protestant translations of the Bible. One of the most outspoken contemporary critics of the continued and confident use of the authorized version or King James Version has been one named Dr. Mark Ward, a tireless promoter of his 2018 book, Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And I'm going to be addressing much of this topic to some of the ideas put forward by Mark Ward, just as last night we talked about the ideas put forward by Bart Ehrman. According to Ward's biographical information posted to his blog by faithweunderstand.com, Ward has a Doctor of Philosophy degree in New Testament interpretation from Bob Jones University, where he completed a dissertation titled Paul's Positive Religious Affections. He served as an academic editor at Lexham Press from 2017 to 2020, and currently serves as editor of the Bible Study Magazine, a publication of an organization called Faith Life. That's the organization that produces the Logos Bible software. Ward describes that organization on his blog as an organization whose mission is to use technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. Uh, There was some outdated church information on his uh, blog site, so I I sent a tweet to him, and he informed me that he is a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, Washington. As far as I know, he doesn't serve as an officer in that church. I'm not sure if he's ever served as an officer within a local church. In the book Authorized, Ward claims to take what he calls a studied neutrality on the question of textual criticism insisting that textual criticism has no bearing to his overall argument. He later explains his only exception to this supposed neutrality is that he is happy to recommend translations using any available edition of the Greek New Testament. I wrote a review of his book in 2019, and it was published in the Bible League Quarterly in the UK, and I pointed out a glaring problem with this approach to evaluating translations. I wrote, the problem is 
that this approach unjustly ignores a major difference between translations that must be taken into consideration in any evaluation of them. The difference between the authorized version and the English Standard Version, for example, is not just a question about the updating of language. It's about the fact that there is a completely different underlying text between the two translations. The connection between text and translation cannot be ignored. Responding to such criticisms, Mark Ward has recently begun to turn his attention to issues related to the text of the Bible. Here are a few of his most recent efforts. In September of 2019, Ward was invited to do a video lecture by Robert Gonzalez for the online Reformed Baptist Seminary. The title of that lecture was An Evaluation of Confessional Bibliology. He's one of the first people who offered a public critique of our position. On November the 1st of 2021, uh, well, let me back up for a second. After he did that presentation, then following soon after it, in the summer of 2020, he published an article in the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal, the title of which was Which Texas Receptus? A Critique of Confessional Bibliology. Then on November the 1st of 2021, Mark Ward did a lecture at Bob Jones Seminary titled Is the Texas Receptus Perfect in Every Jot and Tittle? More recently, Ward launched a projected seven-part video series on YouTube as the convener of a four-person panel under the title The Textual Confidence Collective. The first issue dropped on July 11. There was another one on last Monday, July 18. There'll be five more that will come out. In this lecture, I want to offer a response to Mark Ward's arguments against the traditional Protestant text and upon the translations based upon them. The main thrust of my response will be directed to Mark Ward's 2020 article, Which Texas Receptus? A Critique of Confessional Bibliology. I realize that many of you might not have read this, um, and so I hope that you'll get some benefit even from the descriptions if you haven't read his article, but I'm going to get pretty detailed in responding to some of the points he makes in that article. Mark Ward has often complained publicly online that he has received no meaningful responses to this article. I'm hoping that perhaps this presentation will offer him at least some satisfaction. The uh, popular internet apologist James White seems only to have discovered this article er earlier this year, and then he immediately announced on The Dividing Line, his podcast, that it is a devastating death blow to the confessional bibliology movement. Much as he previously declared in 2019 that Jan Kranz's book, Beyond What is Written, relating to the editorial work of Erasmus and Beza, was, as White put it, a one-volume destruction of confessional bibliology. And yet, confessional bibliology, surprisingly enough, lives on. Some have indeed described Mark Ward's article as well-researched, well-written, and well-reasoned. I'm not, however, so sure that this assessment can stand up under careful scrutiny, since the article, in my opinion, promotes several confusing factual mistakes, logical errors, and misrepresentations of our position. I want to trace seven problems that I see in Mark Ward's argument that he put forward in that 2020 article. Seven problems with his article. First, Mark Ward begins his article by erroneously suggesting that there were 28, quote, major TR editions, end quote, page 51, before Scribner's 1881 edition, the favored TR of those who hold to the confessional text, which Mark Ward calls, quote, the 29th and final edition, end quote, page 53. Mark Ward reaches the total of 28, supposedly 28 printed TR editions prior to the edition of Scribner as follows. He counts five editions of Erasmus, one edition of the Complutensian Polyglot, one edition of Colonnaeus, four editions of Stephanos, ten editions of Beza, and seven editions of the Elzevirs. This totals 28. This number, however, is not accurate. 
There were, in fact, many more than 28 printed editions of the TR prior to the edition published by Scrivener. Among those TR editions, broadly defined, which Mark Ward fails to list, would be the Aldean Bible, printed in Venice in 1518, the Babelius editions of 1524 and 1531, the Plantine or the Antwerp Polyglot of 1572, the Mills edition of 1707, which Mark Ward mentions in the article but overlooks in the list, and the Bengal edition of 1734, and there are others. Why does Mark Ward inaccurately insist that there were 28 printed editions of the TR prior to the edition published by Scrivener, which is the favored printed edition of the TR used by those in the confessional text uh, position? Why does he choose that number 28? Well, he chose the number 28 because he wanted to draw a parallel with the 28 editions of the Nessel Aland Novum Testamentum Graecae. This is the standard modern critical text, and it's in its 28th edition. So he wanted to draw a parallel with the Novum Testamentum Graecae. According to Mark Ward's logic, since the widely acclaimed contemporary standard for the TR is supposedly the 29th edition of that work, Scrivener's, we should not criticize the multiple editions of the ever-changing modern critical text soon to produce its 29th edition of the Nessel Aland. This factual error in Mark Ward's article is, I am afraid, indicative of a more serious underlying problem I have noticed in his argumentation. Namely, Mark Ward sometimes seems less interested in fair, dispassionate, an accurate representation of the confessional text than in shaping the information to serve his polemical purpose of undermining it. This will become clearer in some of the other examples to follow. Second of seven problems. Mark Ward fails properly to define the term, and Brett's teed it up here, he fails properly to define the term King James Version onlyism or KJVO, and proceeds to conflate the Ruckman Ripplinger variety of KJVO with what he calls mainstream KJVO, which is the preference for the King James Version in many independent evangelical and even independent fundamental Baptist churches. So he conflates Ruckman Ripplinger with what he calls mainstream KJVO, and confessional bibliology. Puts us in the same category. As I pointed out in several recent podcasts, to conflate those who simply prefer the King James Version or those who hold to confessional bibliology with, KJ, with the KJVO of the Ruckman-Ripplinger variety is neither responsible nor fair. With respect to those who hold to the confessional text, note, first, King James Version onlyism must necessarily be rejected by those confessional men who hold to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 and paragraph 8, or its daughter confessions, I'm a Reformed Baptist, the Second London Confession, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 8. Why? Because that paragraph affirms that the scriptures are only immediately inspired in the original Hebrew and Greek texts. It is these texts which have been kept pure in all ages. Secondly, that charge is not, that conflation isn't reasonable or fair because there are English speakers who have embraced the confessional text position who do not primarily or exclusively use the King James Version. We might have a vigorous discussion on the topic. I prefer the King James Version. I think it's the best translation. But I have met, I know people, pastors all over the country who said, hey, I think you guys are right about this. I use the New King James. And they might eventually come along to, to accepting this, the, the use of the, of the King James Version. I don't know. But there are people who hold our position who are English speakers who don't exclusively or primarily use the King James Version. And so to call them KJVO 
would make the use of the term only in that phrase completely unintelligible. Third, there are non-English speakers who have embraced the confessional text position, but who desire translations in their own mother tongue based on the traditional Protestant text of the Bible. I did a podcast not too long ago with a brother who's part of the Swedish Reformation Bible Society. And he wants a translation of the Bible based on the traditional Protestant text in Swedish. Um, I'm going at, at the end of October to Budapest, Hungary, as a guest of the Soli Deo Gloria uh, Reformalt Baptista de la Cazette, the only Reformed Baptist church in Hungary. And they've asked me to speak on this issue because they're very interested in using a translation in Hungarian based on the traditional Protestant text. Just look at the fact, we've got, we've got uh, Bill Greendike with us, he can tell us about it. The Trinitarian Bible Society continues to produce and promote translations in various languages other than English based on the traditional Hebrew and Greek texts. How can Mark Ward reasonably and fairly continue to label such persons as KJVO? Mark Ward understands that that term is a pejorative term with negative connotations, especially among many coming from IFB and conservative evangelical backgrounds. And he's known about this for some time. In September 20, uh, of 2019, in the comments on Robert Gonzalez's blog, several persons challenged Mark Ward on his omnibus definition of KJVO and his inclusion of confessional bibliology under that label. Mark Ward acknowledged in a comment, quote, I have rarely encountered pure KJV onlyism. It's in Ruckman and Rippling are perhaps the true extremists, end quote. In another comment regarding me personally, he wrote, quote, Dr. Riddle and I have corresponded. He is clearly not KJV only. And yet, a couple of months after that presentation, he published the article in which he named me as a leading proponent of the position and conflated our position with KJV onlyism. In fact, in just a few days, on July 26, at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, Mark Ward is set to deliver two lectures in their summer series under the projected title, Confessional Bibliology, a Growing Movement of Reformed KJV Onlyists. The title of the second of the two lectures that he will give in that summer series will be How to Pastor Those Influenced by Confessional Bibliology, and other forms of King James Version onlyism. So if you're a layperson, you might want to get your pastor to attend that if you're interested in this position. Just kidding. His persistent use of this conflation, despite many corrections, indicates that Mark Ward may be more interested in polemics than in accuracy. As one person has quipped, with no offense meant to any of our IFB friends who might be here or listening, you can take the boy out of the IFB, but not the IFB out of the boy. Third problem with his article. Mark Ward's rhetoric seems often to rely on conflicting or inconsistent claims. For example, in his book, Authorized, Mark Ward begins by noting that he grew up, quote, reading and hearing the KJV, end quote, adding, quote, I don't recall having any trouble with verbiage, end quote. But later, he exhorts his readers on page 120, quote, children and converts should not be given copies of the KJV, end quote. Similarly, in his 2020 article, he initially states that the proponents of confessional bibliology, quote, take a different path to a similar but not identical viewpoint, end quote, as KJVO. But later, in the same article, he argues that confessional bibliology and KJVO have, quote, the same viewpoint, end quote. The rhetoric here is inconsistent. Let me add a side note here. Last Saturday, I was reviewing these very notes and making preparations for this presentation. And I, I got a tweet and then a notification had a comment on my blog from Dr. Mark Ward. 
he posted a comment to my blog that said this. Dr. Riddle, I had two long talks with Dane Johansson this week by phone and text, and I got private messages from Dwayne Green and Robert Vaughn. I also talked to Tim Berg. All kindly and clearly said the same thing. I should stop calling confessional bibliology KJV onlyism. I have prayerfully considered their appeals and yours, and I have decided to stop using that label for both you and for those mainstream IFB KJV TR defenders who also find that label off-putting or inaccurate. I will publicly make this change in my upcoming Detroit lecture. It's too late for me to change the DBTS announcement page, but I'll mention this matter in the videotape lectures, which will later go on my YouTube channel. If Mark Ward indeed makes this change, we should give credit to him where credit is due. I posted the following reply last Monday. I do appreciate your expressed commitment to cease conflating the confessional bibliology position with KJVO. As I have stated, I do not believe it is either reasonable or just to do so. Thank you for your willingness to listen to the counsel of others and to change your practice. We'll see. Fourth problem with the article. The article's titular question, which TR has, in fact, a practical or functional answer with which Mark Ward is well aware. Which TR? Almost all who hold to the traditional text would answer that question with Scrivener's TR. This is a copy that I have of it. I, I used to use for a long time the old blue board ones that, that uh, Bill Grindike has for sale on the TBS table, and a, a friend gave me this nice uh, version, calfskin version, and so now I use this one. So that's the, the Scrivener edition, if you weren't, didn't know, that's the printed edition that most of us who are in the confessional text movement, that's the one we use as a practical or functional standard when we want to examine what the text is in the traditional text the received text. So, um, at any rate, he asked this question, which TR, but he knows what the functional answer to that question is. This edition, now reprinted by the Trinitarian Bible Society, serves as the general standard printed edition of the Texas Receptus in our day. I agree with R.L. Vaughn who said that Mark Ward's repeating asking of the so-called which TR question is hard to take as genuine, but appears instead to be what he calls a stratagem of debate. In fact, Mark Ward himself clearly answered his own question in that 2020 article when he wrote that Scribner's TR is, quote, used today by basically all who prefer the TR, end quote, page 53. Adding, quote, in a footnote, Page 53, footnote 9. The edition that is universally used is that provided by the Trinitarian Bible Society. Which TR? Well, you, you know the answer to that question. But you're using that question as a stratagem of debate. I've clearly stated that my views are in line with the Trinitarian Bible Society's statement on the doctrine of Holy Scripture. That in the New Testament, I make practical use of Scribner's TR. And that if there are any individual passages, we're going to talk about some individual passages in the second lecture today in the Scrivener's, where questions might be raised about Scrivener's TR, these should be examined on a case-by-case -case basis. I've even provided some principles in a 2019 blog article on how such cases might be addressed and adjudicated. Fifth of seven problems with Mark Ward's article. Let me warn you, this is going to be a lot longer point here because we're going to get some detail and some specific passages that he cites. Fifth problem. Mark Ward illogically confuses comparisons that might be made between printed editions of the TR, even calling this, quote, textual criticism, end quote. He confuses that comparing a dish printed editions of the TR 
with the kind of actual textual criticism using the method of reasoned eclecticism that produces the modern critical text. Category confusion. Comparison of editions of the printed TR with reasoned eclecticism. After a long discussion in the article in which Mark Ward illustrates, rightly, that proponents of the confessional text reject the methods of modern textual criticism, he then pivots to add the following, quote, but proponents of confessional bibliology do sometimes acknowledge the necessity of one specific kind of textual criticism, that between TR editions, end quote, page 60. The problem with this statement is the comparison of slight differences in the printed editions of the TR is not textual criticism. Certainly not of the sort used to compile the modern critical editions of the Greek New Testament. And yet Mark Ward confuses these two distinct things repeatedly throughout this article. From here, he makes another illogical comparison that causes even more confusion as he insists that what he calls the variants between the editions of the TR are not any different than the variants between the TR and the modern critical text. We might note that even his use here of the word variant is confusing since in modern textual criticism, this term is typically used to define differences that exist between hand-copied manuscripts of the New Testament. As, for example, when Mills cited 30,000 such variants in 1707, or when Gurry cites half a million of them, 500,000, in the 2019 article that he wrote in Myths and Mistakes. At the beginning of the article, Mark Ward writes, quote, the King James Version translators used two TRs, Stephanus of 1550 and Beza of 1598, end quote. This statement, however, is not precisely accurate. Since the King James Version translators likely made use of other printed editions of the TR as well, one might wrongly take Mark Ward's statement to mean that the King James Version translators used only these two editions. Significant attention is given later in Mark Ward's article to pointing out various differences between two printed editions, not Stephanos and Beza directly, but he points out a series of differences between the Stephanos printed edition of 1550 of the TR and Scribner's edition, which is the contemporary standard first published in 1881. So he points out differences. When it comes to calling attention to differences between these two editions, Mark Ward divides them into ten categories. He first describes seven categories of differences, along with examples of each, and then after an interlude, he describes the last three categories of difference with examples of each. Clearly, he believes the first seven categories of differences are of little significance, whereas the final three categories are of greater significance. And if you'll bear with me, I want to go through all ten of the types of differences and give at least one example from each one. Let's begin with the first seven types of differences. And again, these are differences between the Stephanos 1550 and the Scrivener, which is the contemporary standard printed by the Trinitarian Bible Society. Seven categories of differences. First, spelling differences. There are a few spelling differences between these two printed editions. He gives, as one of his examples in Matthew 10.25, Stephanus reads Beelzebul, while Scrivener reads Beelzebub. It's a difference of one letter. Stephanus, it's a final lambda. lambda in, uh, in Scrivener, it's a final beta. Second, he says, there are differences that do not show up in translation, but could. He cites as an example Matthew 9.33, where Stephanos uses the conjunction hati, the so-called hati recetistative, to introduce a quotation. You have a quotation, he said that. Or we might say sometimes in English we're saying something, he said that, or we might just simply say he said. And so sometimes we use the, the that, and sometimes we don't. What's well, a similar example? In Stephanos, it has the hati. In Scribner, it doesn't have the hati before the quotation. 
So that's, that's a difference that doesn't show up in translation. The third type of difference is word order between, again, these are scattered, a few differences between the printed editions. One difference is word order. For example, in 1 Timothy 1-2, Stephanus reads Christ Jesus, while Scrivener reads Jesus Christ. A fourth uh, difference is differences that amount to simple redundancies. As an example, he cites Revelation 7.14, where in Scribner's it describes those who washed their robes, and it spells it out, stolos auton, their robes. While Stephanus talks about those who washed them, simply uses a pronoun. So a difference that amounts to a simple redundancy. A fifth difference is a difference in number, singular versus plural. In Matthew 10.10 in Stephanus, Jesus tells the disciples not to bring a staff singular. But in Scribner's uh, TR, he tells them not to bring staves plural. Six, there are some differences in persons and pronouns. For example, in Mark 9, verse 40, Stephanus' text reads, and by the way, when I'm giving these quotations from the Bible, I'm using the, I'm not sure what translation Mark Ward used, but I'm using his translation in these and not the authorized version or any other one. Anyways, Mark 9, 40, Stephanus' text reads, the one who is not against you is for you, using a second person plural pronoun. While Scribner's text reads, the one who is not against us is for us using a first-person plural pronoun. Seventh of these first seven differences, tense and or mood differences in verbs. One example is in Revelation 3.12, the Stephanus text uses a participle from the verb katabino to come down to describe the New Jerusalem. So he uses a participle, describes the New Jerusalem as coming down. While in Scribner, the verb itself is given in its regular third-person singular present active indicative form. So it simply says, New Jerusalem cometh down or comes down. So that's the first seven of ten of the types of differences between two printed editions of the TR, Stephanus and Scribner. So he's asking, which TR? Let me offer pause here in the midst of our survey. And let me offer two responses to these first seven before we move on to the other three, which he thinks are of greater significance. Here's my first response. It should be noted that Mark Ward himself, in this article, dismisses the significance of each one of these categories. Regarding spelling differences, he writes the following, quote, any TR defender who reads this article will likely and rightly, in this writer's opinion, dismiss the first category of TR discrepancies as utterly insignificant. Beelzebul or Beelzebub. Regarding differences that do, not, uh, that do not have to show up in translation but could, he writes on page 66, quote, the difference is less than minor. Regarding differences in word order that do not affect meaning, he says TR defenders, quote, are likely justified in dismissing this difference as insignificant, end quote, page 66. Regarding differences that amount to simple redundancies, he writes, quote, once again, TR defenders are justified in seeing, in seeing this as a distinction without a difference, end quote, page 66. Regarding differences in number, singular versus plural, he writes that since, quote, no doctrine rides, end quote, on these differences, they are, quote, trifling, end quote, page 67. Regarding differences of person in pronouns, he writes, there is a difference, quote, in translation, but not in meaning, end quote, page 67. Regarding tense and or mood differences in verbs, he writes, quote, it is difficult to see a significant difference in meaning, end quote, in the examples he cites. Page 67. That's the first response. Ward himself says those differences are not significant. Here's the second response. In addition to Mark Ward's own dismissal of these differences as insignificant between the two TR editions, we might offer a much more obvious and easier solution affirmed simply through common usage 
namely the reading in the Scribner edition relying primarily on the 1598 Beza is to be preferred. That makes sense? Just use Scrivener. Okay, now let's move on to the last three, which he sees as being much more significant. So the eighth difference, he says, is differences in words that produce differences in meaning. Again, unlike the first seven categories, with this eighth category, Mark Ward contends that in places, Stephanus and Scribner, quote, use wholly different words requiring notably different translations, end quote. He offers ten examples. I started to go through all ten of them, and time won't allow. But let me just list the ten. Matthew 2.11, 1 Peter 1.8, 1, 1, uh, 1 Timothy 1.4, 1, 1 John 1.5, 1, 2 Corinthians 11.10, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Philemon 1.7, Hebrews 9.1, James 5.12, Revelation 7.10. And again, in, these will be examples where there are slight differences between what you find in Stephanus and what you find in Scrivener. Uh, sometimes it's, it, uh, let me just look here real quickly. You know, one of the examples is in the one in 1 John 1.5, it's whether it should be the word epangelia, or angelia. It's a difference of a prefix, of the epi prefix. Is it epangelia, promise, or angelia, message? And it could be you could transfer, translate either word as the same, if that makes sense. But in light of time, I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at one, and I'm not going to cherry pick, I'm not going to choose one of the easiest, I'm going to choose one of the most difficult. And it's one that Mark Ward often appeals to. In his writings, it's Matthew 2.11, Matthew 2.11. So Matthew 2.11 is from the infancy narrative of our Lord, and it's describing the visit of the wise men. And here's Matthew 2.11 in the authorized version. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. So I'm going to stop there. So it's really Matthew 2, 11a. All right? So it's the wise men came in, and the key thing is they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They saw. And so what's the difference between the two printed editions of the TR, Stephanus and Scribner? Well, in Stephanus, at... uh, this passage, it reads, the wise men found Jesus. And actually, this is what makes this one more difficult. That's also the reading in Beza. Stephanus and Beza both say that the wise men found Jesus. It's the the Greek verb huron. Whereas in Scribner, it says they saw Jesus using the verb idon. If it's Huron, as in Stephanus and Beza, then it's an aorist active indicative third-person plural form from the verb Hurisco, to find. If Idon, it's an aorist active indicative third-person plural from the verb Orao, to see. If we examine the TR editions, we see, again, that Huron, to find, was the reading in Erasmus' 1516, in Stephanus, and in Beza. The Latin Vulgate also has invenerunt, they found. So there's a pretty strong argument for the Stephanus and Beza uh, reading. With respect to other English translations, the Tyndale and the Geneva Bible also have found, following Stephanus and Beza. But the reading Idon in Scrivener, they saw, is also found in some early printed editions of the Greek New Testament, including the Complutensian Polyglot and Colonnaeus. The King James Version reads saw. It was not, however, the only Protestant translation of the Bible to adopt this reading. The Spanish Reina Valera translation of 1602 reads vieron. I'm probably mangling the pronunciation. They saw. Interestingly enough, Idon is also the reading found in the modern critical text. 
If you pick up the NA-28, it reads Idon, same as Scrivener's, same as the Complutensian Polyglot, same as Colonnaeus, same as the Reign of Valera, same as the King James Version. There are no notes that point us to the apparatus. This is actually uh, not discussed by Metzger in his textual commentary. It is the reading that is found in Robinson Pierpont's Byzantine text, and it's in Pickering's text according to Family 35. Pickering has a note explaining that the reading in Scrivener, Idon, appears in 95% of the extant Greek manuscripts. Scrivener has Idon, reflecting its appearance in the King James Version, but also, interestingly enough, agreeing with Westcott and Hort. This is listed by Scrivener as one of only 190 places in his text which depart from the 1598 Beza. It's striking that the King James Version translators departed from both Stephanus and Beza and Tyndale with respect to English translation tradition to use the verb saw. Of course, they were also departing from the Latin Vulgate, which makes this a distinctively Protestant reading. In the end, we see that the Scribner reading is certainly not irrational, and there are good reasons, perhaps, for preferring it to the reading that is found in both Stephanus and Beza. My assumption is that this will generally be the case if we examine each one of the other ten examples, the other, or the other nine examples that Mark Ward gives. That is, we will find that the Scribner reading will likely find support in, in early printed Greek editions of the New Testament, in other Protestant editions of the TR, and in other early Protestant translations of the Bible. So these differences might well be resolved, as with the first seven differences in this eighth category, cited above, if we simply follow Scrivener, which is what most persons who embrace the confessional text do, practically speaking. Okay, the ninth of these ten differences. He lists under the label, missing clauses. Missing clauses. And I know one of the students last night said that they were hoping this would be addressed, and so this is, this is it. We're going to talk about it. Mark Ward only provides one example of this difference. It is found in 1 John 2, verse 23, the second half of it. Scrivener, in his text, includes this half verse. In the original King James Version of 1611, it's translated there and placed in the text in Roman type, not Gothic. And in later editions of the King James Version, the, the latter half of 1 John 2.23 is printed in italic. The reading is as follows in the King James Version. But he that hath the Son hath the Father also. The King James Version translators put that in italic. Usually they put something in italic if they're supplying words that are needed to let you know it's that, that something isn't in the original. But that, that's not always why this is used. Sometimes it's used to indicate that, hey, there's some question about this verse in the printed editions of the TR. They include it, but they put it in a, a, a different type to let the reader know that. It's a lot of information in the King James Version, actually, um, to, 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 to gain in learning about Scripture if you don't know Hebrew and Greek. Well, this half verse is not found in Stephanus. So, verse John 2, 23b is not in Stephanus. It is in Scrivener and placed in uh, italic. In Scribner's appendix to his Greek New Testament, he notes that this sentence is omitted in the Complutensian Polyglot, in Erasmus, in the Aldine of 1518, and it's omitted in the first two editions of Beza. We already said it's omitted in Stephanus, and it's not included in Tyndale's translation of the New Testament uh, into English for the first time from Greek. It is included, however, in Colonnaeus, 1534, and also in the fourth and fifth editions of Beza, and in the third edition of Beza, but in an altered form. Well, Scrivener usually follows the fifth edition of Beza, Beza 1598, so he includes it. It's also the reading of the Vulgate. 
Furthermore, this phrase also appears in other early Protestant translations, like the Hungarian Károly Gaspar translation of 1590 and the Spanish Reina Valera translation of 1602. So it is not unique among Protestant translations. It's not unique to the King James Version, for example, to include this verse, this half verse. What is more, 1 John 2, 23b appears in the text proper of the Nestle-Alon 28th edition. It's, the, it's the, the text that is affirmed as being original by modern scholars with a note in the apparatus telling us that it is omitted in minuscules 81, 642, 1175, 2492. It's also not found in the Byzantine tradition and in some Boharic manuscripts. And yet they include it in the text proper. So, when we look at 1 John 2.23, there is more than ample reason to affirm that the Stephanus text of 1 John 2.23 is reliable. Okay? Um, let's move on to the last one. Tenth, tenth difference he lists are contradictions. Contradictions. Finally, Mark Ward suggests there are two places in the New Testament, in the printed editions of the New Testament, the Texas Receptus, where one finds a, what he calls a blatant contradiction between Stephanus and Scribner. In reality, both of these might just as, a, as well have appeared in his eighth category, but he puts them in a special category. The first of these is at James 2.18 where Stephanos reads, and again, I'm using Mark Ward's translation here, show me your faith by your works, using the preposition in Greek, ek. Show me your faith by your works. While Scrivener reads, show me your faith apart from or without your works, using the preposition choris. So which is it? Is it Stephanos's show me your faith, ek, by your works, or Scribner, show me your faith, choris, uh, apart from or without your works. Mark Ward notes that the former, the Stephanus reading, is found in the Bishop's Bible, while the latter is in the King James Version. This is indeed a clear-cut difference between the 1550 Stephanus and the 1598 Beza. Though the earlier Protestant translations seem to have followed the reading in Stephanus, the King James Version is not alone among later Protestant translations to reflect the text of Beza. Again, Reina Valera, 1602, likewise reads, Sin tus obras, without your works. And, interestingly enough, if you take the Nesolon 28th edition, they print Choris, same as Scribner, at James 2.18. Again, there is ample reason to support the reading that is found in Scribner. The second example in this category is Revelation 11.2, where Stephanus reads, inside the temple, esothen, whereas Scribner reads, outside the temple, exothen. It's really a difference of two letters. Esothen means inside, exothen, outside. Again, we've got a clear division between the 1550 Stephanus and the 1598 Beza. Though several early English translations like Tyndale follow the Stephanus reading, later Protestant translations show a clear consensus for exothen, for without. So the Bishop's Bible, Geneva Bible, Authorized Version, all say apart from or without works. And guess what? Exothen is also the current reading of the Nestle Alon 28th edition at Revelation 11.2. Again, the Scrivener reading is not unreasonable in light of the evidence. So, we've looked at all ten differences that he's laid out. Overall, we have seen that the ten categories of differences between one early printed edition of the TR, Stephanus 1550, and the current Protestant standard, Scribner, based on Beza, these differences are not quite as daunting as they might first appear. 
In general, we can see that the Scribner reading often reflects actually a consensus Protestant text, a mature Protestant text. And interestingly enough, it often agrees with the current reading of the modern critical text at some of these disputed points. We then can make use of it without worrying about taking up a corrupted or confused reading. All right, let's move on. The sixth of these seven problems with Mark Ward's article. Sixth problem, the which TR question with respect to the slight differences between printed editions of the TR distracts from the much more serious and consequential problems inherent in the modern critical text and the methods that have produced it. Modern textual criticism presents editions of the Greek New Testament that radically depart from the traditional text in hundreds, if not thousands, of passages. Take the textual key published by the Trinitarian Bible Society. It lists 650 differences in the New Testament, and that's just scratching the surface. There are thousands more. Of course, we know about the big ones, taking out the ending of Mark, taking out the woman taken in adultery. That's 24 verses total. To remove those from the text of Scripture would be be the equivalent to take out some of our shorter canonical books. What is more, various editions of the modern critical text often radically differ from one another, though they claim to use the same reliable empirical method. I mentioned, uh, I can't remember if it was a lecture or in conversation last night, Ehrman defends Luke 23-34. James White rejects it, but supposedly they're supposed to be using the same empirical method that, that gives us the exact same results. So, There are lots of problems in the modern critical text. As we noted with our survey of Ehrman last night, in this postmodern era, modern textual criticism has essentially abandoned any hope of reconstructing the original and seeks only to provide an approximation of an initial text. At its worst, the which TR question, when posed by evangelicals who have embraced the modern critical text to those of us who affirm the traditional text, comes off as a version of the two-quoque fallacy or the well-you-do-it-too fallacy. An example of this fallacy would be if person A said to person B, you shouldn't overeat or you'll get fat. And person B responds, well, you overeat too. The response of person B does not negate the truth of the statement made by person A. Confessional bibliology says you should reject the ever-changing modern critical text, which has abandoned any hope of ever reconstructing the original, and instead you should embrace, as a confessional Christian, the received text, the Reformation text. When modern evangelicals respond to us, well, which TR, they are, in fact, often trying to distract attention from the much more obvious and serious problems that exist with their own text. Such a question, if posed to distract attention from the many problems inherent in the modern critical text, actually represent the failure of their argument against the confessional text rather than the triumph over it. Before we leave this point, let me suggest that, in my opinion, There is room under the broader canopy of confessional bibliology for more than one perspective on how God has chosen to to preserve his word in the received text. Let me suggest the possibility of at least three positions that I think can all fit under the confessional bibliology umbrella. First, I think there is room for those who hold unequivocally that the pure word is preserved in every jot and tittle with respect to the New Testament in Scribner's TR. I think there's room in our camp for those who hold that position. Secondly, however, I think there is room for those who say that the pure word has been preserved in every jot and tittle in the family of the printed editions of the TR. Scribner's TR serves as a practical representation of the text, and any objections to it at any point may be confidently examined on a case-by-case basis. 
A person holding this view might even suggest that in some cases, the proper text is found either in one reading or in another. For example, he might say that the proper reading at 1 Timothy 1-2 might be Christ Jesus, or it might be Jesus Christ. In Matthew 2.11, he might say, it might read that the wise men found Jesus, or it might read that the wise men saw Jesus, and he might even point out that perhaps those two words have essentially the same semantic meaning, to find someone, to see someone. It's the same thing, right? The differences between the two in such cases is typically limited and trifling. Mark Ward, however, would apparently object to this stance because he would say that if we say that we think it's there in either one reading of the TR or another, he said, well, you're just doing what we do. We just say that it's there in the footnotes. If it's not there in the text proper, it's somewhere down in the footnotes or it's there in the mass of manuscripts somewhere. This is not, however, an accurate comparison. The modern evangelical scholar has committed himself to textual agnosticism. One of his, that movement's leaders, evangelical leaders, has told us we do not have the text of the New Testament in our printed editions or translations. And even if we did, we would not know it. Furthermore, he has told us that no verse in our New Testament is certain, fixed, or stable, but that it might be altered by discoveries in the Judean desert or new algorithms developed in Munster. To hold that the proper reading is that found either in one printed edition of the the received text or in another is in no way comparable to the complete open-endedness required by the modern critical text method. I'm going to suggest a third position might stand under our canopy. I think there's room for, in our camp, for someone who intuitively believes in the perfect preservation of God's word in every jot and tittle. He or she takes Psalm 12, 6, and 7, Matthew 5, 18 at face value. That person wants to embrace a text of the New Testament that will include those beloved passages like the traditional ending of Mark, the woman taken in adultery. You're going to take that passage out of my Bible? The confession of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 37. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Or the three heavenly witnesses written here so prominently at the front of our meeting uh, site. And such a person might say, you know, I want to read a Protestant Bible. I want to read a classic Protestant Bible. A translation based on the traditional text. And maybe I don't know the original languages. I can't get bogged down in trying to defend every objection raised by modern evangelicals to my text. I simply want to use a text and translation that stands in continuity with Protestant orthodoxy. And I want to use a text that has been used for generations, that was used by my grandfather and my father, that will be used by my grandson instead of relying on the ever-shifting trends and fads of the modern academy or the marketing of the Bible industry. So I think there's room in our camp for different perspectives on this thing. Seventh and final, seventh and final problem. I know we're, we're well over time. I'll try to hasten to the end here. The real question is not whether the not whether the TR has been kept pure in all ages, really. That's not really the question. The question is whether the Bible itself has been kept pure in all ages. And friends, I hate to say that sometimes all this talk of criticism of the TR is in fact merely veiled criticism of the Scriptures themselves. It's rebellion against the authority of the Word of God itself. That's at stake. When our godly Protestant forebears read from their printed editions of the TR and from translations based upon them, they believed 
that they had, with the Spirit's help, immediate access to the autographs, as they had been perfectly preserved by God in every jot and tittle. Read John Owen on Matthew 5.18. It's not just about preserving the ideas in the Bible. It's the very letters, the jot and tittle. When modern evangelicals criticize the traditional text and attempt to point out errors or inconsistencies within it, they are not questioning the purity and preservation of the TR, but the Bible itself. And I think deep down some of them know it. Mark Ward recognizes this in his article when he writes, quote, I do not relish as an inerrantist telling lay people that the biblical manuscript tradition contains variants, end quote. But you're telling them about it, aren't you? As I reviewed his article, I was struck by the many demands he makes within it to those of us who hold to the confessional text. We must not hold a high view of the King James Version. We must stop professing allegiance to the TR and choose one edition of it. We must stop claiming that the Bible has been perfectly preserved. We must stop saying that if God inspired his word, he can also preserve it. Here's a direct quote, page 77. TR defenders must stop claiming to have a pure and absolute text. That claim is, quite simply, causing brothers and sisters to divide unnecessarily. We must stop saying we have a pure text. Isn't that what Psalm 12.6 says? He also says we must save the layperson the difficulty of being told that his modern Bible is corrupt. Well, what if his translation of John 1.18 reflects modalism? Must we be hesitant to say that we think his modern Bible is corrupt because we want to spare him his feelings? I felt at times in reading this article like I was a naughty boy being lectured by a Catholic school nun. Perhaps it's time we turn the tables and we pose some questions to the, excuse the term, Brett, modern text onlyists. I posed 10 questions on my blog last week from Mark Ward. First related to the whole issue of conflating us with KJVO. I said, is that reasonable and is that fair? Thankfully, last Saturday he agreed to his credit and he said he's, he said he's not going to do that anymore. Here were the other questions I posed him. Mark, do you believe that God's word is perfect and that it has been, that, and that it has been kept pure in all ages? Which modern critical text do you believe is the word of God or the best approximation of it? Because that's what they would say. We don't have it, but maybe we've got an approximation of it. Fourth question. Do you agree or disagree with Daniel Wallace's recent statement? We do not now have in our critical text, critical Greek text, or any translations exactly what the authors of the New Testament wrote. Even if we did, we would not know it. Do you agree with that or not? Fifth question. Do you agree with James White that any verse in the Bible could possibly be changed based on new manuscript discoveries? Six. With reference to your preferred modern critical text of the New Testament, what percentage of that edition do you believe is accurate and what percentage is questionable? Can you give specific examples of each? Seven, do you believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is a spurious and uninspired corruption and should be removed from our Bibles? <clears throat> Eighth, do you believe that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is also spurious and uninspired, a corruption that should be removed from our Bibles? Nine, do you believe that modern, the modern text and translation rendering of John 1.18 is theologically accurate? Ten, do you accept the reading of 2 Peter 3.10 in the Nestalon 28th edition, which, by the way, adds a conjecture, a negative particle, ook, that doesn't appear in any Greek manuscripts? Friends, Mark Ward's article is hardly a death blow to confessional bibliology. If anything, it only affirms how much 
how much more desirable it is to hold to the confessional text than to hold to the modern text. We can hold to our text with confidence, with trust, with praise to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. I know we went way, 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 way over. Uh, so I'll leave it to the conveners as to how they're going to settle that. But uh, I get to, I'll get to just close this in a brief prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thee thanks for this opportunity we've had to meet together and to reason over these things and to think through these things. We ask if we have uh, stammered and said something uh, not clearly or in error that you would send the Holy Spirit to correct our understanding and help us to uh, leave here today with a greater confidence, a greater love for thy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.